Heavenly Father, this morning we ask that you'd open our eyes to see who you are. We've gained glimpses of who you are now. We've sung and we've prayed this morning. And yet, now as we read your word, we are grateful that you've spoken to us. You haven't left us in the dark. You've told us who you are and you've told us what you're up to. And I pray that these truths would move us to to live and to think and to act in ways that will honor you. And and to depend upon you in and through the days of our lives. So this morning, I pray, Father, would you teach us from your word as we gather as your people to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, if you've been here over the last year or so, and as I've had different intermittent chances of preaching, we've been kind of working through these last three chapters. And this particular section, 25 to 29, is, if you will, the the, the author, the preacher is getting ready to land the plane in his message. This really is the conclusion to his message, though it's not the conclusion to the book. He's, He's kind of bringing home his final points that he wants his readers to get, so... Verses 25 through 29 of Hebrews chapter 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them, warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1992, in the summer, my wife and I spent uh, a couple months in Southern California. We were on staff with Campus Crusade, now crew, and we were there for the summer, a tough place to spend a summer, San Diego. But we uh, were wakened one, e- one morning, about 5.30 or 6, to a strange experience that being Midwesterners, we'd never experienced before. Indeed, every aspect of our environment was moving and shaking. And as you kind of come out of your slumber and the bed shaking, the, the, the things in the wall are shaking, the vertical blinds were shaking and bumping into each other. And you're kind of trying to get your orientation and figure out what's going on. And we, indeed, we got up and, and everything was moving. And you look out and everything is moving and shaking. And thankfully, it didn't last that long. We were right in the middle of an earthquake or a strong tremor or something but it was a it was strange, unnerving, surprising, fearful experience. Because, right, your whole life has taught you to learn this one thing, that the ground underneath you is something that's dependable. That you can stand there, and it's not going to move on you. And all of a sudden, in one moment, you find that that which you believe to be true for so long isn't as true as you thought. That that stability that you thought came from just being on the earth is, it was, is something that's not going to change. And that moment reminded us and showed me that, no, pretty much everything is shakable. Everything is movable. And whether or not you've been in an earthquake or not, you've had the earth under, move underneath your feet, I am quite certain that you've probably been in circumstances where your world around you 
has shifted and changed in ways that you didn't expect. Things that you thought you could depend on, that you thought were stable, that you had learned your whole life that you could trust in for some reason or another shifted and changed. And all of a sudden you found those things that you depended on were not quite so dependable and the shaking only produced that. And the response is fear, disorientation, kind of perplexed nature of what's going on in the world around us. That experience is really very much what the recipients of this letter was, were, were feeling, what they were experiencing as their whole lives have been shaken up, right? They, they were Jews who had embraced the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They had professed their faith in him. And all of a sudden, as a result of their faith, they were experiencing their whole world being shaken. Relationships and social network and financial security were being taken away from them. And no longer could they feel secure in those places. Those things that they thought they could depend on were gone. And the author, as he writes to them, and he says, I know that your world has been shaken up. I know these things have been taken away from you that you thought you could depend on. But whatever you don't drift away from the faith. Hold fast to what you've come to believe. Because what you've come to believe is your life. If you abandon it, if you reject it, you're only rejecting life. And he writes to them to say, hold fast. Don't give up. Even though I know everything around you is shaking. Don't drift away. And in this section, the author, as he lands the plane, as he finishes his message, he's been trying to explain to them and show to them the greatness of Christ, the superiority of him and what he has done and provided for them. He, we see here a final warning, a final call for them to not reject the one who speaks, to not reject the message of the one who has spoken to them, indeed is still speaking to them. And he gives them this picture This picture, this cosmic final act that God's going to bring about. The shaking of the heavens and the earth that's going to take place. And then he concludes with with this call to let us be grateful. A natural response to one who understands that. As we look at that this morning, we want to kind of unpack this image that we see that he gives us. And the response that he calls for believers to have. A couple of observations, though, as we look at this final section of his message. He wants to connect the past, the present, and the future. We see that the time horizons all connect. He's referring, as he has throughout this book, throughout his message, through the past. And he says that, that they, if they did not escape when they refused to warn from heaven, how much less will we escape? And they, in this situation, are, they are the, the Israelites. They have been the case study from beginning to end of this book. The Israelites who were rescued out of Egypt, brought into the wilderness and promised a land to themselves that God would bring them to. And yet they did not receive that promise. They did not experience the fulfillment of the promise because they didn't unite the promise with faith. As a result, they suffered loss. They didn't get the things promised. That's who he's referring to. He says, look back at them. See their example. God has given us their example for a reason. But the past is connected with the present. The present circumstances. The author says at this time, his, or, um, in verse 25, see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking right now, even through their past situation, their past event. He's speaking to you now. And the beauty of the scriptures is that they are speaking. They didn't just speak in the past. They speak 
to whoever is listening to them because indeed they carry the voice of God. And he says he is speaking today to your present circumstances. And that's been a message throughout this particular message that, that, the, that the author of Hebrews has given to them, that God is speaking. And it's a message to us today. Presently, he is speaking to us as we hear what he has to say about the past. But then he says, I want to look at the past in light of the present. And then I want to look at the future. And the author, author looks down the road and he says, there's a day coming yet once more. I'm going to do something. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He says, I want you to look at the past in light of your present. But I want us to have our eyes fixed in the future. What God is going to do, what he's going to accomplish, what he's going to bring about in this event. The images that we have in this section are important for us. The, the author says, I want you to see these things and the shaking that's going to take place is significant for them, for them to get. The, the passage just previous to this, he, he uses another image that's important. He uses the two images of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And these mountains were embedded in the memory of Israel. It was something that they, they knew and they could understand in Mount Sinai. It was that fearful place that God had brought them. And we're told that that was a place that the author gives us this picture, this lens on it, that, that demonstrates that it produced a distance. That Mount Zion was this mountain in which we're, we're called to come up further up and further in to the, to the nearness of God, to hear the words spoken by the blood of Christ, the forgiveness that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And there he compares and contrasts those two mountains and calls us into a relationship with God through what Christ has done. But what we're not told in that section, but in Exodus chapter 19, is that something was true of Mount Sinai. And that was a place that shook with the very presence of God. When God spoke, if you go back there, they were so frightened by the, the fact that the earth moved when God, when it shook, when he spoke, that it, they, they said, please don't speak anymore. This frightens us. And the author says, it shook then. But it's going, to shook, it's going to shake one more time. There's something else that's going to happen as he looks down the road. And he uses this image of, of the shaking that's going to take place. That word is used five times in this section. Shook, shake, shaken, however you want to put it. That, that, to get this picture of the author. So I want you to see what's going to take place. This is the key image in our text this morning. It's a memory of, of Mount Sinai. It's a picture, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, from the dedication of the temple in Haggai chapter 2 that we read during our, our uh, order of worship. But it also represents the reality of their lives, the suffering that they were undergoing, the way in which their own lives were being shaken as a result of their faith in Christ. And the author presents to his readers this picture of this final cosmic reality, this event that's going to take place, the ultimate end of the story. The end of the story is when the king shows up and consummates his kingdom. When the king says, I'm here, and we get to see him, there's something that's going to take place that's described here when he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. See, there are those who are listening to this message were subject to abuse and mistreatment and persecution. They were marginalized from people and systems in which they lived. But God says, I'm going to shake all of that up. I'm going to shift and change these things to find that these are not just an opposition to you, but they're opposition to God. And so the central image for us we need to see this morning is this shaking of heaven and earth. That God's going to come and shake the natural order 
as we see this event in God's story and we begin to apprehend its applications, as we begin to look past, present, and future and apprehend what God's going to do, it allows us to stand firm. It allows us to, to fix our vision and our sight, to stand firm and to hold on and not drift away and not abandon our faith because as He promises, He says that we have received a kingdom that is unshakable. What we have been given is something that can't be taken away. And as we get our our minds and our hearts around that, we realize we can stand as we see that. So this morning, we're going to do two things. We're going to look at this image of the shaking of the heavens and the earth and ask, what does that mean? How does that apply to us? And then secondly, there's two natural responses that he gives to us. The final call to let us be grateful and let us worship. So those are the two things we're going to look at. The image first. So what's going to happen when God shakes things up? We know that term, right? If new management comes in, what happens when they shake things up? That things are going to change, right? There's going to be some things and you go, I don't know what's going to happen. When God steps in, he says, I'm going to shake things up. Things are going to shift and change. And so he, as the author warns them, don't refuse him who is speaking. They didn't escape. Neither will you escape from this message that comes from heaven in verse 26. At that time, the voice shook the earth. That's Sinai. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And the author, as he writes, he says, don't reject, don't abandon this message that's based, based purely on what seems to be true. Purely on what your perception might tell you. Purely on the trials that you're undergoing, because just as the earth shook in the past under Sinai, there's another one that's going to happen. This time, though, not just the earth is going to shake, as in Sinai, but the earth and the heavens are going to shake. And the question we ask is, what does that mean that the earth and the heavens are going to shake? Well, we know what it means when the earth is going to shake, but God throws in here the heavens. And by the way, in the Haggai passage, he says, in the seas and the dry land, in case we want to get this fully, he says, everything is going to be shaken up. Every aspect of creation, every aspect of the created order is going to be shaken when God shows up, when the King shows up. And the shaking there involves everything. There's nothing that will be excluded from this event. And the event back in Haggai chapter 2, when we have these words that the author used, it really kind of, it's compressed. It it describes or explains all of chapter 2. When the author here says, yet once more I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and and you maybe didn't, haven't, you know, didn't read Haggai this morning for your quiet time. Maybe not the most familiar, but that setting of Haggai was in the second, the, the late sixth century or the early sixth century when Israel, Judah had been brought back from Babylon in their exile. And here they come, they return in a miraculous kind of way. And there's a few that come back, but not so many. And they begin the building of the temple, but then they stop as they preoccupied by their own things. And then God comes to Haggai and says, I want you now to, to preach to them and call them to finish the work they've begun in the building of the temple. And in chapter two, they finish. And, and, and this, this word comes from the setting in which the, the, the temple is being dedicated. And the people show up and they look around and they go, there's not so many of us here. And they look at the temple and they go, uh, that's not so hot. It's, it's not quite like the splendor that Solomon's temple had. There's not many of us and the resources that we had, not that many. And we look at this and we're disappointed. And God steps in in that moment and says, I know you're disappointed. At the numbers that are here, I know you're disappointed. I know you're afraid. And you go, oh, what are we doing here? Are we just playing games? And God says to them, he goes, but 
you know what? There's more than what meets the eye here. There's more than what it looks like. He says, there's, there's more that I'm going to do. Yet once more in a little while, he says, I'm going to shake the whole natural order up. And there's two things that's going to happen. One is that all the riches of the nations are going to come in. And the latter glory of this temple be greater than the first. The latter glory of this temple as the riches of the nations come in. There's a lot there we can't unpack. It just means that God's going to do something with the nations in the enhancement of his temple. Secondly, he says this is going to happen when I shake things up. Every one, every person, every power that opposes me will be reduced to nothing. Everyone that opposes me will be brought to submission. I will oppose him. So everything will be turned upside down. The author says, keep this picture in mind. When, when God shakes things up, everything is turned upside down. Or we might say right side up. As we look at the circumstances and situations, we ask the question, is God really in charge here? Is Christ really ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father? And we ask those questions. And, and he says earlier in this text, in chapter 2, as he gives this explanation for the lordship of Christ, he says everything is brought under, under subjection to him. He says this. He says, kind of in honesty, he says, but at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Just honestly, right? You look around, you go, it doesn't look that way. But he says, just wait. There will be a day that the discrepancy between what is and what appears to be will be completely obliterated. That in this life of whatever appears, the the evil triumphs over good, appears that fallenness and brokenness are the only things that we experience in sin that is there. It feels like sometimes in these seasons in our life, that that exhausts what God has said he's going to do, the sin that we experience in the brokenness. And yet the author says there's going to be a day, yet once more, things will be shaken up. And when that happens, his rule and dominion of this kingdom of God will be unmistakable. Fix your eyes on that. See what I'm going to do when I, when I accomplish this. And he says, so that what can be shaken will be removed. And that which cannot be shaken will remain. Now here's the beauty of what takes place in the shaking that takes place. Is that there's a line that's drawn. It reduces everything into one of two categories, right? All of creation into one of two categories. It simplifies things. In our life, it's, there's confusion, right? Sometimes good and better and best, we can't tell. Good and evil become confusing to us. What has real value becomes confusing to us, and it's hard to know exactly what we are to live for and how we are to live, and there's confusion there. When the shakeup takes place, everything will be clear. Everything will be brought into one of two categories. That which can be shaken and will be removed And that which was shaken and will remain. The only two places, there's no middle ground. When he shows up, when this happens, clarity comes. When his kingdom, when he shows up, there's no question. A line is drawn, and this line draws and separates a couple different things. When it's drawn, it reduces between what's removed and what will stay, what will remain. In the first case, when he shakes things up, the eternal is separated from the temporal. There's a line that's drawn between eternal and temporal. That which is temporal, guess what happens? It's removed. That which is eternal, guess what happens? It remains. It stands. Now we experience this, right? In an ongoing kind of way. It's it's an event that the author says, I want you to see this. It's going to happen in the future. But 
but we experience this in, in slower kinds of ways, kind of slow motion throughout the course of our lives. We get a glimpse of this effect, sometimes slow, sometimes fast, right? Shiny new cars get scratches, dinks, the paint fades, they break down. Eventually, they're destined for the junkyard. New technology, right, becomes obsolete in no time at all. Our bodies break down, wear down. Even the healthiest experience that. Some faster, some who experience disease and pain and suffering comes upon them in no time at all. The rest of us, it's just over the course of a lifetime. You go, I've got the same fate, going the same direction. It's downhill. And those experiences, it teaches us something. It reminds us, that the points us ultimately that the reality that we face is that the temporal will fade and the eternal will last. And God shakes, if you will, throughout the course of our life. He shakes up our own lives and say, I want you to see what lasts, what's eternal and what's temporal. In His grace, He does that. And we go, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, that's the way this life is. Lord, help me to live for that which lasts. Help me to live for that which is eternal. And God chooses to do this over the course of our lives. And we find and we learn that some things are shakable and removed and some will remain. But in that day, it will be crystal clear. There's no doubt. There's no question what's eternal. It's going to stand. It will stay. But when God shakes things up, there's another line that's drawn between eternal and temporal. The other line that's drawn here that's helpful for them, that's helpful for us, is that the line will be drawn between those who oppose God and those who live in submission to him. The line will be drawn and it will separate those who oppose God and those who live in submission to him. This event will reveal, it will separate all those who are against him, who are antagonistic towards him, who live, and then versus those who live in submission and obedient faith to him. He will shake to the core all that is. And it will reveal those who, are, who are, have bowed themselves before him. Those who are his. And it will reveal and it will judge those. And so there's this clear line. In, in this world we look around and we go, who's for him, who's against him? It's not so sure. We look at our own hearts, right? And you can't tell from day to day exactly where my heart is. We go, we need a line drawn. We need something to be done. That separation to take place. Purification to happen. A revealing of those who are for him against him, even in our own hearts. And that line will be drawn between people and systems and powers and authorities in our world. But the line will go even farther it will begin to draw itself right down between our our hearts. It will reveal to us what's there. The parts of our hearts that don't bow the knee, that are resistant to submitting to Him, that, that fight His rule and reign in us because in reality that's there. Who of us have experienced in a, you know, in a full day, complete submission to living in, in, uh, in, in submission to God and bowing our knee before Him. He will recover or uncover the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And we see this inner battle within us. And the promise is He's going to draw the line. He's going to separate even our own hearts. See, the fact is that which stands in opposition to God cannot remain forever. 
There's going to be a day where everyone who stands opposed to Him will bow the knee whether they want to or not. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That, that, that's going to happen. In this world we see it and it doesn't appear that way. The author says there will be a day when this will happen. This is not an eternal reality that those can stand opposed to God. He allows it for a period of time. But there will be a day, in that day, when the heavens and the earth are shaken, we will see this take place. The forces, the attitudes, the systems, the values, the peoples that oppose God will be revealed, judged, and purged. Be eliminated. When His kingdom comes in its fullness, all that remains will bow to Him. All that remains will bow to Him. Those who are opposed will be removed. See, the author says, I want you to see this. Don't miss this picture. When God shakes things, those who oppose him will be removed. The emphasis in this text, the beauty of some of the, the tenses of these verbs in, in verse 26, when it says, but now he has promised, the emphasis is on the present enduring nature of that promise. In fact, it's probably better translated, and now he promises. It's a past promise that has enduring reality. He promises he's going to do this. This is a a future event and it's as good as good. It's as good as done, though it's not completed yet. So he promised to shake up and to reveal and to judge. We're, We're reminded in other parts of Scripture that the primary nature of those who oppose God, it's spiritual. Paul says that our battle is against flesh and blood. And so it's, it's spiritual in nature, and yet people and systems and forces adopt the ideas and the values of the evil one. And, and so God will sort all of that out in the last day. When he shakes it up, it will be clear. The spiritual forces and then those who have adopted those ideas and values in opposition to God will be revealed and judged So the author reminds them, your worlds have been shaken, but there's going to come a day where God's going to shake everything. And in the shaking, it's going to reveal, one, the temporal from the eternal. At the same time, he's going to reveal those who oppose him in relation to those who live in submission to him. And that's why you can't drift away. That's why you can't let your faith go. If you do, if if you abandon your faith, you find yourself in opposition to this God. You find yourself on the other side of His promises. Not living in accordance to them, but living in opposition to them. You find yourself at odds and enmity and enemy with God. And so you lose the promises that He's made. So don't abandon the promises, but by faith live them out in opposition to Him. And so the Christian has this great hope. He says, you've been given an unshakable kingdom. And then one day it will be clear. Whether it's clear here and now or not, one day it will be clear. But then the author, as he he paints that picture for them, he concludes in verse 28 and 29, right? Here's the response. As we get this picture, he says, here's the response. As we realize we have an unshakable kingdom that's been given to us, here's the response is, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, let us be grateful and let us offer to Him acceptable worship 
The therefore triggers us, right? We go, okay, what do we do? If you've been reading through this book, if you have, you know that the, that the let us form is there is in clusters throughout the book. And it tells us something. The author says, here's my point. Here's my application. And he calls us together to say, let us respond to this truth. He's given us a picture. Now let us do this together. Let us be grateful. And he calls them to be, to be grateful as well as to offer worship. Now, the, the point, I think, for us, there's a couple of, of things that we think about these two calls upon our lives. One, in one respect, as we understand the kingdom we've been given, its unshakable nature, the natural fruit or byproduct will be gratitude and worship. It, it's going to come naturally as we grasp that. So there's a natural byproduct that, that fruit will grow of worship, of gratitude. But he calls them to do something. So there's also cultivation that we have to be about, right? He says, let us do this together. So we have to cultivate it as well. And so we need to understand what we have, but then there's also cultivation. So he says that gratitude grows as fruit. So let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom that's unshakable. And as we do that, the gratitude is going to grow like fruit in our lives. He says, get this picture. What you have been given cannot be taken away from you by anyone or by anything at any time. The kingdom that you have, it's been given to you. It will be given to you. It will be completed. You'll see it. It can't be taken away from you. The gift that God has given you of living in the reality of his kingdom, of his rule, his reign, his grace, his kindness, his mercy, access to him can't be taken away. As you get that, Gratitude comes. So we get that as we understand that. One author put it like this as he was describing this. He says, Ingratitude lies at the very root of all sin and rebellion. Ingratitude lies at the root of all sin and rebellion against God. So gratitude is the pulsating heartbeat of every positive response to the gospel. Gratitude is the pulsating heartbeat of every positive response to the gospel. To say thank you for what you have done. I mentioned the outline of the Heidelberg Catechism earlier. Guilt, grace, and then gratitude. And even in the question and answer that we had, it reminded us, why is it that we live this out? It's out of gratitude for what he has given to us, what he has done and provided for us. And yet gratitude needs to be cultivated in us. As we look at our own hearts, the presence or absence of gratitude, it tells us something about our spiritual health, right? Do I find thank you readily on my lips to God? Is it easy to tell him thank you, to identify what he has provided for us, this kingdom that he's given to us? It tells us something about our spiritual health. One of the phrase that caught me reading from an author recently, a guy named David Paulison, who's a theologian and a counselor. He says this, he writes, thank you is one of humility's core instincts. Thank you is one of humility's core instincts instincts telling us something about our heart it reminds us of what we what what's missing my gratitude or lack thereof tells me something that's important is thank you readily on my lips or not and if thank you isn't growing is if gratitude isn't growing something else is so the author says be thankful be grateful together let's do this as we see this together in a corporate fashion but secondly he goes on to say thus Let us worship God acceptably, acceptable worship to him with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. 
What a conclusion, right, to a sermon. For our God is a consuming fire. Done. Mic drop. It's done. He goes on to finish some other words, but his sermon finishes there to get our attention. It should kind of go, whoa, wait a second here. And what he's saying is that there's, there's, there's something about, about God we want to make sure that we not take, that we don't take too lightly. That this creator, this one who's, who is the king, he is the one who's going to shake things up and allow things to stand and things to be removed that's there. That he is the one, the creator of all things, is going to uncreate. He will reverse the creating and the shaking. He is the one who holds all things together. In him all things consist And when he shakes, everything will come apart. He is the same one who causes us to stand. He is the same one who will enable us to remain in the process when everything else is shaken apart. His grace will be present for us now and in that day. And so the author says, this is our God that we need to offer acceptable worship, which, by the way, means every facet of our being needs to be given to him. Let's let's do this. He says, and that awe and reverence combine or are consistent with his character. And so we need to be aware and not take him too lightly to be aware of who he is. He is the king as he brings his kingdom in. Fear and reverence are natural to response to the greatness of God. He is the one that shakes all things and he is the one who is the consuming fire. And here I want to conclude with this picture. There's something in, in this text, in that conclusion, if I can put it this way, has, has, has bugged me just a little bit. That, that I've tried to make sense of, and, and here it is, and maybe you feel the same thing. But there's a beauty as we begin to grasp what it means that God is a consuming fire. You see, throughout the entire message that the author, his, his image and the picture and the call is, come near to God. That because of what Jesus has done, we get to come into the presence of God, right? We get to enter in with confidence, with gratitude, to to receive what we need, that Jesus has provided this access to the very presence of God without fear. Without fear of being struck dead, we have this access because of what Christ has provided. So how do we square these two? This this concluding point that, that God is a consuming fire with this call to come near, to come further up, further in, to come near to Him. How do we make sense of this fact that we're to draw near to the one who is the consuming fire, who's awesome, who's holy? Are we to run towards Him or run away? How do we see Him? And, and, and I think, because I'm trying to make sense of this in my own mind, there's, there's a sense in which even as a, as a Christian over the course of my life, now 49 years old, I realize that I, I kind of get it. There's a part of it that intuitively I kind of get, although at times it's difficult to explain, but I want to put it in, the, in a couple different ways. First of all, it's his greatness, his beauty, and his majesty that draws us to him. It's this greatness, this consuming aspect of who he is that draws us to him. He is God. He is not like us. And, and, and the reality of who he is as we begin to grasp that attracts us like a moth to a flame. It draws us like Moses when he sees the the bush and goes, i got to go check this out. I don't understand it. So his greatness and his beauty and his majesty draw us to him. See, it's a fearful delight that draws us to him. Fearful delight. Now, there's few 
authors I've found that can mix these two ideas together so well is one of my favorite authors in C.S. Lewis. And I have just a little section I want to read to you as we think about what it means to be drawn to the consuming fire. What it means to come into the presence of him. One of my favorite books in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Horse and His Boy. And in the, in the story, real quick, is the two horses and a boy and a girl are making their way across the desert from a place, evil place to a good place to Narnia. And they come to this spot and, and, and they, they're introduced for the first time to Aslan, right? He, he's the king of Narnia and they're introduced to him. And one of the horses, Bree, thinks he knows something. Bree is one of the horses. The mare is um, Huynh. And Erebus is one of the girls who's come from this other country. I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs. So stay with me. If you like stories, you'll like it. If not, just stick with me with this. This is one of my favorite. This is my second favorite scene in this particular story. I don't know why I love kids' books, but uh, this is catches this. So Bree is talking about Aslan. But when I speak of the lion, of course, I mean Aslan, the great deliverer of Narnia, who drove away the witch in the winter. All Narnians swear by him. But is he a lion? No, of course not, said Bree in a rather shocked voice. All the stories about him in Tashban say he is, replied Erebus. And if he isn't a lion, why do you call him a lion? Well, you'd hardly understand that at your age, said Bree. And I was only a little full when I left, so I don't quite fully understand it myself. In parentheses, Bree was standing with his back to a green wall while he said this. And the other two were facing him. He was talking in a rather superior tone with his eyes half shut. That's why he didn't see the changed expression in the faces of Wen and Erebus. They had good reason to open, to have open mouths and staring eyes because while Bree spoke, they saw an enormous lion leap up and from outside and balance itself on top of the green wall. Only it was brighter, uh, a brighter yellow and it was bigger and more beautiful, more alarming than any lion they'd ever seen. And at once it jumped down inside the wall and began approaching Bree. From behind, it made no noise at all, and Wynne and Erebus couldn't make any noises themselves, no more than if you were frozen. No doubt, continued Bree, uh, when they speak of him as a lion, they, they mean that he is as strong as a lion, or to our enemies, of course, as fierce as a lion, or something of that kind. Even a little girl like you, Erebus, must see that it would be quite absurd to suppose that he is a real lion. Indeed, that would be disrespectful if he was a lion. He'd have a, he'd have to be a beast just like the rest of us. Why, and, and, and Bree began to laugh here. If he was a lion, he'd have four paws and tail and whiskers. I, oh, oh help! For just as he said this word, uh, whiskers, one of Aslan's had actually tickled his ear. Bree shot away like an arrow to the other side of the enclosure, and there turned the wall was too high for him to jump and, the, and could fly no further. Erebus and Wind both started back. There was about a second of intense silence. And now why I'm reading this section. Then Wynne, though shaking all over, gave strange, a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you'd like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. <clears throat> Dearest daughter, said Aslan, planting a lion's kiss on her. Twitching velvet nose, I knew that you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. When we think about what, what the Christian's response to this consuming God, it's that. 
to be eaten by you, to be consumed by you is better than to be fed by anyone else. That story just can, continues to kind of resonate in my mind. And my heart, and it tells me it's, that's what we desire about God. He is not like us. But the second point that I want to make, his desire or desire for him is connected to his majesty and his greatness. But the second point, as we think about the fact that he is a consuming fire, is this. Only in Jesus can we draw near and our fear be turned into delight. Only in Jesus can we draw near and our fear be turned into light and God's consuming character be turned to our good. Did you get that? As we, in Christ, our terror of Him, we don't have to run from Him. We get to run to Him. And His consuming nature becomes our good. Jesus turns our terror into awe, turns it into light. The line in, in Amazing Grace reminds us of this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and by grace my fears relieved." But then he goes on, this, this picture of God's consuming fire. How can God's consuming character be turned towards our good? How can that be our good? And the question we need to ask is, what is it that God consumes? When God consumes, what is it that he consumes? What does he, what does he take? All that is opposed to him, all that is unholy. For those who are in Christ, who live under the terms of the new covenant, who live under the, the gracious word of the blood of Christ, of forgiveness, This fact that he is a consuming fire is actually a message of hope. It's actually a message of encouragement. Because what does he consume? All those who oppose him. For some, it's enemies without. It's enemies who are trying to destroy them. And we know that in that day, for many Christians around this world, they have this hope that God will show himself to their enemies physically. For many of us today, we don't have that same kind of experience. But the promise is that we also have hope that he is consuming our enemies within. That he is at work in each of our lives, destroying the enemies, purifying our hearts, addressing pride, hardness, unbelief, rebellion, lack of submission to him, pretension, all those things that will set us up against him, that will set us in opposition to him. He is at work destroying those. And this hope that we have goes deep as deep to our own hearts to change us there. The great hope is that there will come a day when he comes and he shakes things up. We will dwell then, then with him completely, knowing that his enemies have been dealt with, even the enemies that, that exist in our own hearts. And we will know then what it means that it's better to be consumed by him than it is to be fed by anyone else. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the truth that we've been given a kingdom that can't be shaken. Help us to live in the reality of that. I think of many in our midst whose their worlds have been shaken, and I pray that this truth would rest on them and in them. They would live in that by faith and trust in your promises, that you would strengthen them by grace, those with health and physical issues, those in relational and financial challenges. Father, would you be with them? Even those who are suffering kinds of persecution for their faith. They're suffering for that. In America, around the world, Father, would you help them to stand, help us to stand in the midst of that, knowing that that in the end, everything will be separated and simplified. Help us to trust you in the middle of that. Walk with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand for the benediction.
Also, a reminder that 